Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Compton. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Schwartz, author of the new book, Work Disrupted, Opportunity, Resilience, and Growth in the Accelerated Future of Work. Schwartz, who received a master's degree from the School of Public and International Affairs in 1987, is the head of the future work practice for Deloitte. In that role, he consults on and researches ideas and innovations around how businesses conduct their work, what a typical career path will look like in the 21st century, and the potential technology has to enhance job satisfaction across industries. Over the last decade or so, Jeff's team has produced reports, which you can see on our website, predicting we are on the precipice of major transformations in how and where we do our work. Jeff and I speak about his findings over the years and how COVID-19 has, in many regards, resulted in changes his team saw coming, such as working remotely, and how the timeline for the onset of those changes to the status quo has accelerated dramatically due to the pandemic. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Carrie. Jeff, your work is based around consulting on the future of work. Tell me, how do you think about work, at least as we knew it before the pandemic? And in relation to that, how do you think about work as it might ideally be in the future? Carrie, this is a great question. When we think about work, we're actually thinking pretty much about a fairly narrow topic. We tend to think about the jobs that we do, and we tend to think about our jobs in a way that they're separate from our lives. Our jobs are on one side, our lives are on the other side. And we think about our work and our jobs as if they are relatively static, right? You choose a career, you study in school, we study at Princeton, we um, pick a profession, we get on a, a career ladder, we do that for a couple of decades, and then we retire. What we've seen in the last year is that work as we are all experiencing it is much more dynamic than we ever imagined. Mm -hmm. It involves different combinations of employment models, different ways that people are working with technology. And when we come on to questions like careers, a career model in a world that is dynamic is very different than a world that is static. When we think about work Pretty much historically, we think about output and we think about productivity. Mm-hmm. We think about how do we do the work that we're doing now more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Again, on the other side, we know that work is increasingly and what drives value in work about innovation. It's not about the same output. It's about new outcomes. So there are all these potential shifts that we're looking at. And I think we're at a pretty important inflection point right now. So because of the timing of the release of this book, um, it was just released in January, I am going to go on a limb and say you probably had it pretty well written before the pandemic hit. <laughs> I'm curious to hear uh, how much did, did you have to change it to accommodate for COVID-19? I, um, I wish I was further along um, <laughs> when COVID happened. We sent the book to the publisher July 1st. 
okay. and the book came out in January. So that was a fast publishing cycle. And I've been working on the book in some way since 2013 when I started to research these issues. I wrote one of the first articles in my research on the future of work in 2013 on the open talent economy. And we were looking at the sharing economy and freelance workers and gig workers and crowd workers. This is before these concepts were as common as they are today. Mm. Then a couple of years later, we wrote a piece literally titled Machines as Talent. Mm. And then we began to explore what does it mean to actually put technology onto the workforce? Um, in 2016, 2017, Deloitte started its future of work practice. I became the U.S. leader. And, and that was really when my, my, my sense was that two things were happening. One was that there were some significant shifts and trends going on around how people work with technology, how employment models are changing, how workplaces are changing, and the implications that those changes have on careers, on management and organization. And so the book was really structured around those shifts. When COVID came on the scene here in the US really last March, the trends that we were looking at actually were not only accelerated, they were accelerated dramatically. I was fortunate to have about three and a half months to look at the manuscript through the lens of what we were seeing in COVID. And, uh, I, you know, in many ways, the book is a reflection of a great quote from another Princetonian, um, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's head of the um, New America, the think tank in Washington. And Anne-Marie literally said last March that the coronavirus is a time machine to the future. Mm. And things that we thought would happen in five years were happening in five weeks. Mm -hmm. And so that was really my takeaway, which is that what we were thinking about in terms of these overall trends mm -hmm. were not only greatly accelerated, but we were thrust into a disrupted world. Having taken the time to think about these trends, it was even more relevant that we think about them in terms of disruption and new lenses and new ways of looking at work and management and career problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to, to go back to something you said earlier about technology in the workplace. I think anyone who's listening to this has probably had a moment where they had to ask themselves whether or not they could one day be replaced by automation. You have a very unique take on that. Why don't you describe what you found? Well, the question of the relationship between people and technology and among people, technology and work is, is one of the greatest concerns right now that we have in our work and personal and, and public policy lives. In many ways, Carrie, um, I find when I talk about this, whether it's with family or friends or uh, professional settings or academic settings, people have one or two images in their minds around the future of work and technology. Right. There is the image of the robot apocalypse, which is literally um, robot and AI and technological anxiety. Mm. And there's the image of what, what I call and others call humanity unleashed. Imagine a world where there's no drudgery, where there's no carpal tunnel syndrome, where physical work is safe, where mental repetitive work um, can be done by partnering with machines. But I'll, I'll just highlight two, two points here. One is that there's little question, I think, that many of us will find literally in the next five to 10 years 
that we will be working with and next to smart machines and robots if we're not already doing that today. And that those, this same group, which is many of us, certainly includes those of us in management consulting, we're working with different technologies all the time, will find that our jobs will change. Mm. Our jobs will not go away, mm. but our jobs will change and they will change rapidly. Mm -hmm. What I try to explore in the book are the ways that as work changes and as technology becomes part of the way we work, I think there's, that there's the real possibility that work becomes more human and more interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I talk in the book about what happened when we introduced um, automated teller machines to banking. Um, which happened in 1979, 1980. And actually, since that point, there are more people in retail banking, there are more retail bank branches. And if you look at the job of retail bankers, people working in those bank branches, 40 years ago, they mainly did the work of a teller machine. They actually handed out cash and they took cash. Today, what retail branch bankers do is help us with financial products, help us with mortgages, help us with cybersecurity issues. It's a much more interesting job, a job focused on more complex questions and relationships. Mm. But one of my favorite examples for thinking about the relationship between people and technology, and it comes from Eric Topol. Dr. Topol is a medical doctor. He wrote a fantastic book called Deep Medicine. And, and, in, and I use this in the class that I teach, an MBA class that I teach. And in his, um, one of the chapters, he talks about how radiologists are working with AI. The book is about AI and medicine. And radiology is an interesting field because there are some people who thought a couple of years ago that as AI gets better at reading and, di and diagnosing medical scans and different digital um, images, that we will basically not need radiologists anymore. That they will be replaced, if you will, mm -hmm. by, um, um, by AI. And Eric Topol, I think, presents an image to us. This really is the Humanity Unleashed image, which is the opportunity for radiologists is to become a Renaissance radiologist who stands on the shoulders of the technology. She actually uses the technology to see further and to do different work. She or he are not competing with the technology in the same way that I don't compete with my Roomba or my dishwasher to do certain things. Um, what these technologies do is give us the gift to do things that human doctors can uniquely do. And he uses this other expression, deep care. Deep care are the things that human doctors, human nurses, human clinicians can do. So the opportunity, and it's not easy, Carrie, is to stand on the shoulders of technology, to recognize that our jobs will be changed, and to ask the question, what is the Renaissance version of what you are doing and what I'm doing? What's the Renaissance version where we can combine technology and people, humanities and science, something we really understand, I think, um, um, not to do the same thing, but to do new things. Um, I, I want to talk about the 100-year life, 60-year career. <laughs> talk about that a little bit. So um, th this, um, the concept of the 100-year life is a concept that was uh, really popularized by two professors at London Business School, Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott. 
who wrote a book a few years ago called The Hundred Year Life, that uh, people born in uh, the last decade of the 20th century and people who are being born in the first couple of decades of this century can reasonably expect to live to be 100. What's interesting about a 100-year life is that in a 100-year life, you can expect to work for 50 or 60 years. Mm. And we know that the average time in a job is three to four years. We know that the half-life of a learned technical skill, like a computer language, for example, is five years and dropping. So if we work for decades more and we spend three or four years in a job and the half-life skills is coming down, then we will have many, many, many careers. Our careers are not ladders, right? One of our clients calls our career, their image for a career is a jungle gym. My image is a portfolio, that, that our careers are portfolios of lifelong reinvention. And in a career of lifelong reinvention, it has some pretty dramatic implications for how we prepare and for how we manage and think about careers both in a corporate setting and organizational setting and from an education and a public policy setting. So what is a career in a hundred year life and how is it different than what a career looked like 20 or 30 years ago is, is one of the really good examples from the book that I've tried to explore. So you discuss some of the cognitive attributes that are the most beneficial to 21st century work. Among those are an emphasis on liberal arts education uh, creativity, adaptability, and emotional intelligence. And it sort of occurred to me that these are attributes that are really well emphasized in American education, uh, but not in some overseas cultures as much where the emphasis tends to be towards the rote. Do you think, whether wittingly or not, some cultures' approaches to education are doing a better job to, at preparing their citizens for this future? So, Carrie, this is a great question. I, I think there's a, there may be two or three questions rolled in here. Mm -hmm. um, one is the question of sort of at least one person's perspective, my perspective on what are the core 21st century capabilities. Uh, we refer to them often as enduring human capabilities or essential human capabilities, um, which are different than soft skills. We're, we're not going to call them soft skills or hard skills, at least um, I'm not going to call them that. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the, the question of if these are the, the capabilities, and I'll, we'll talk about them in, in a second, are they relevant all over the world? And where are they relative to different educational cultures and strategies? It's a really interesting question. Um, there's your next book right there for you. Well, there's, yeah, <laughs> there's no shortage of questions. There's no shortage of, of, uh, of topics. And the, the, the decade we're in, the 20s is gonna be one for the books. There's some amazing stuff going on. You know, there's been a very broad discussion, and I don't think it's a U.S. discussion. I think it is a global discussion on, on two sort of central ideas here. One is that, and we've touched on this, as we are living longer lives, lives with multiple chapters in them, 50, 60 year careers, you know, 12, 14 jobs um, that we're going to um, all have to undertake, our ability to retool ourselves becomes really, really important. Mm. A metaphor that I'll use is we need to be like a machine tool. Mm. A machine tool is a tool that makes tools, right? right? And what we're talking about when we're referring or I'm referring to enduring human capabilities are what are the capabilities we want to develop in ourselves and uh, our children and our workforce so that they have the capabilities 
to learn new skills, to create new tools mm. as they go. Mm. And we know what those are. They, they are problem-solving communication, social intelligence, the ability to ask questions, the ability to communicate. Sort of those are the machine tools, if you will, that we need to uh, develop. You know, it's interesting. I have a liberal arts background. Uh, my first degree is in intellectual history. Um, and then um, I did one of my graduate degrees at Princeton and uh, I did uh, international development economics uh, in the graduate school. And I also have an MBA um, from Yale. But it all goes back to the enduring capabilities that I learned as an undergraduate that I really build on. But uh, I, I think that the this underlying challenge of enduring human capabilities of sort of building, um, sort of learning as a machine tool, I think is, is a pretty global one. I'll, I'll end with one or two uh, quick examples. There's a, a test that's uh, implemented by the OECD every couple of years called the PISA test. They look at secondary school capability around the world. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of places that do really well in it. One of the places that does the best in the world is Finland. Mm. Um, and Finland has something that would look more like an enduring human capability curriculum than a highly skill-based um, curriculum. So I think that there is um, an element of that. The other is, if we look at places in the world, I lived in India for five and a half years in the last decade. Um, although the curriculum in many of the schools is highly prescribed, mm. Um, it's a very entrepreneurial place. They have the, you know, there's a, there's a word in, uh, in Hindi called jugat, which is the ability to innovate um, and use what you have in order to produce new results. That's interesting. So I, I think that there's what we're looking at in terms of the core capabilities in education. And, but I think the idea that we all need to be adaptive and innovative. Yeah. Um, in some degree, in some way, it's becoming a, a universal. But the, the overlay of culture is, of, is probably one of the biggest complexities and challenges we're looking at now as we're trying to create global future of work strategies, both for companies and for educa uh, educational institutions. Yeah. So you discuss the future workplace from the vantage of the worker as well as the manager. Let's start with the worker. If it were up to you, what do you see as being some of the most necessary changes that workers can benefit from? Well, what we've been in a forced experiment over the last year. Um, we're recording this in February, so we're we're entering our twelfth month of uh, of COVID lockdowns um, here in the U.S. A little bit more for uh, people who are in uh, China and other parts of Asia. Uh, in terms of virtual work. The flexibility and the ability to, to some degree, set your own schedule. Mm -hmm. The lack of commute for many people has been a real benefit, um, as opposed to getting on the subway for 45 minutes to uh, walk across your house. Um, many of us who are used to coming home late or traveling um, have spent more time uh, with our family, with our kids. Um, that's been a real plus. It's been very hard, on the other hand, on parents and particularly women who have found that um, they have had, if they're working, which most of them are, both a full-time job and trying to sort of co-teach their, their kids who are learning remotely, that's been um, very tough. So I think one of the really interesting questions is what's going to happen 
to remote work when our kids go back to school. Um, and I think there are some real advantages um, in the ability to work remotely. I think the big challenge, both for workers and managers, if you will, when we can go back is being deliberate about what it makes sense and where the real value is in being in the same place at the same time. And most workers, I think, recognize, I certainly recognize that there are things that I miss. There are social aspects of work. There are activities that I think will be really very beneficial to be back in the same physical space. But a lot of the things that many of us do during the day, we can do from home or from a third location. Um, so there's going to be a very interesting period in 2021, second half in 2022, where we're not asking the question, do we work at home or do we work in the office or on the campus um, or in the hospital or the laboratory? But rather we're, we're asking, given all the choices we have, how, how do we wanna construct the working day, the working month, the working year? And how does that work for us? Mm -hmm. And that's a new muscle, that's a new mindset. We're not used to working with that many choices. Before the pandemic, most of us felt as if the place to work was in the office and working from home was an exception, right? We now need to really explore and sort of shift that um, uh, perspective. But I think it's a, it's a big shift. I think it's more of a choice than anything else, Carrie. What are some changes that ma managers and business leaders would most benefit from in the 21st century? And this is, to me, this is the most interesting question. This is really the top line question of both the future of work discussion and work disrupted, uh, the, my book, mm -hmm. which is how do we look at 21st century business and organizational challenges through 21st century lenses, not 20th century lenses. And look, we, we still have a hangover of scientific management mm -hmm. in the US and around the world. Um, the, the shadow, the long shadow of, of Frederick Taylor and scientific management and the notion that work is mechanized and process oriented um, and can be prescribed um, uh, and optimized mm. um, really is the language of management um, and business. Mm. Um, and if I were to summarize it um, uh, in a couple of phrases, um, when work is mechanistic, and process-oriented and optimized, then managers are process flow experts um, and compliance experts um, and efficiency experts. And what we're seeing, I think, in the 21st century is work is moving from being process-based um, and mechanized and automated and looking like a factory, if you will, even white-collar work, uh, if you will, looks like a factory, to work that is more project-based, initiative-based, experience-based, mm. mission-based work. Mm. Um, and when the nature of work changes, the way that we need to organize and management needs to change as well. So it's obviously supervision um, and controls are important, mm -hmm. but we're seeing a shift to um, managers and executives uh, as coaches. I, 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 the image that I like to use is, team leaders increasingly are player coaches, people that really know the game, mm -hmm. but are on the field with the team at the same time. Mm -hmm. Managers and executives are behavioral economists, understanding 
um, uh, the way people think, understanding um, the cognitive biases we have. Um, one of the lines I use in the book is, we, we all need to be choice architects now. We need to think about how we can design environments that help people to be productive. We need to be designers. We need to design the future much more than we need to manage the future, yeah. right? We need to be inspirational. We need to be digital Sherpas. We need to not just build the digital technology, but help our teams and our clients navigate mm -hmm. um, that new world. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, so I like the Sherpa <laughs> uh, metaphor. And we need to be cultural anthropologists. We need to understand what the cultural institutions are um, that are around us and understand the categories that we create. So there's a whole new set of lenses, if you will, that we can look at, at management through that we think are maybe more relevant and might be more useful as we're, we're going forward. So we need to take the old tools of the 20th century and some new mindsets and ways of, of working and really put them together. Right. You emphasize in the book alongside the project-based future that you envision uh, high levels of democratic participation and teams as being the most effective way of working, but teams with a higher percentage of women. Talk about that. I think one of the things we've learned in the COVID 2020 period was that when we stopped looking at people's resumes, when we stopped looking at the job wreck that we had when we hired them, and we started asking the question, what can Jen, what can Jeff do? Mm. What can Carrie do? Not what did we recruit her to do? Not what has she been doing? But what is her potential? What are her capabilities? What are her interests? Mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've seen organizations of people really perform amazingly. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Malone is a professor at MIT with colleagues at MIT and Carnegie Mellon. did uh, a study about 10 years ago and they looked at the IQ of teams. And, um, you know, these are pretty sharp people at MIT and Carnegie Mellon. They designed a set of experiments to study this. And they, you know, the first hypothesis that most of us would have is what makes a smart team? You'd say a team made up of really smart individuals. Well, it turns out that that is not the winning formula. Obviously, it's good to have intelligent people on the team. But the three things that they found were that were associated with team intelligence were one, what they describe as social perceptiveness, mm -hmm. which is literally the ability to sort of read the audience and the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. The more socially aware and social, so, the socially perceptive mm -hmm. the team was in aggregate, the better the team could work together. You can see if we sort of recognize what's going on among the team members, whether it's virtual or not, that's helpful. The second um, thing they recognized was that the more democratic the team was in its operations, the smarter the team. I mean, literally the better results they achieved. Right. Or put another way, the more democratic the discussion, the more even the discussion flow in the group, the more people participate, the smarter and the better the results of the team. Right. And the third thing they found was that the more women on the team, the smarter the team appeared to be. Now, I've heard a few views of that. One is that um, women in general, and this is a, a generalization, obviously, women are better at one and two. Women are often more socially aware and perceptive. Uh, often women, both participants and managers, 
um, are better adherents to a democratic way of running a team. And there may be some other benefits that we, we haven't necessarily articulated, but it's not just having really good individual players. Mm -hmm. It's social perceptiveness, participation, the way the team works and having women on the team that according to Tom's research produces smarter teams and a higher team IQ. Very interesting. Um, how would you characterize the difference in what businesses were most concerned about pre-pandemic as opposed to what you're hearing from them today? So this is a very interesting um, question. And, and let me um, highlight sort of two data points from some research that we've done. Uh, at Deloitte, we do a, an annual survey, a global survey of human capital trends. We did a survey last September and October. It's a global survey, about 3,600 senior executives, 99 countries. Pretty good survey, very good survey. Um, so it's about seven, eight months into COVID. And then we released a report in December. And there were two major findings. One was we asked uh, business leaders how their views of crisis and preparedness had changed pre-COVID and post-COVID. And, and pre-COVID, the focus of crisis management seemed to be what we might describe as business continuity, mm. right? We knew what we, we had an idea of what could go wrong. We had a small list of highly probable and likely events. Uh, you know, if you're living in uh, San Francisco, an earthquake, if you're living in New Orleans, uh, um, a hurricane, those would be two uh, hopefully obvious examples. Nobody seemed to have a pandemic on their list. Um, and the view was that we were prepared for a known limited set of eventualities. And our goal was to withstand them and then get back to work doing what we were doing before. Right. Right. So, so the, the first change we saw was a significant shift where executives are saying, look, in the future, crisis preparedness is not about a small number of known challenges. It's about multiple challenges, including unseen and uncertain challenges. Mm -hmm. We need a much more agile playbook mm -hmm. for crisis preparedness. Mm -hmm. The other piece was very forward-looking. We asked business leaders how their views, the work that they do in their organizations were changing, right? Mm -hmm. Pre-COVID, 70% said that their focus on work was optimizing work, making it more efficient, and redesigning work with the aim of substituting technology for labor. 29% pre-COVID said that their focus was transforming work or reimagining work, right? Post-COVID, they said something almost the reverse of that, really? right? The post-COVID perspective was 61%. So pre-COVID, three out of 10 said that reimagining work was their priority. Post-COVID, more than six out of 10 mm -hmm. said that reimagining work was their, prior was their priority. Mm -hmm. By reimagining work, what we're talking about is not doing the same work, but doing new work, new outcomes, think of innovation, think of new um, impact, mm -hmm. new combinations of people and teams and technology doing new things from three out of 10 to six out of 10. If you hear the excitement in my voice, that's because I think what we're hearing from executives is that after COVID, we're not going back to what we were doing before. Mm. COVID is not a detour. Mm. COVID is an on-ramp. And it's an on-ramp to doing something different. Now, the question is, 
whether, you know, how far business leaders push themselves on it, how far workers and communities and citizens push business and public policy leaders on it. But it's very interesting to see um, shifts from predicted futures to more uncertain futures, mm -hmm. to optimizing work, to reimagining or what we call re-architecting work, building mm -hmm. new futures. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I would just like to ask you to offer one piece of parting advice to all the working Joes out there listening to this. What would you like to tell them to prepare themselves for? So my advice really comes down to, it's got two pieces to it. And you, you've been talking with me for a while. So, you know, it's very hard for me to come up with one thing. But, but one is you need new maps and you need new mental models. You know, that Albert Einstein quote that you can't use an old map to explore a new world. And we are exploring new worlds all the time. We're certainly doing that as we pivot from pre-COVID to post-COVID. So really challenge yourself to have good maps, good guides, good teammates as we're going forward. Um, and my second piece of advice is find new maps and new guides, but get started today. Um, these changes are afoot. We're in the middle of some major transitions, whether it's for yourself as an individual or the people you care about, your kids, your family, your friends, mm -hmm. the people that you work with in your organizations, your businesses, or as citizens, um, we need to get started on these new ways of thinking and new ways of working. So. Those are my two pieces of parting advice. Thank you so much, Chef. Thanks, thanks for joining me on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.